This is the morning brief from the Economic Times. Deyuri, a single mother, left her homeland with her children and two pairs of clothing, clinging on to just hope as she braved the rough seas and made her way to India, dreaming of a place where she wouldn't have to pay princely sums to put three square meals on the table. Around 16 of us reached at the Rameshwaram Mandabam camp. So two families, including us, came in a boat and some other two families came in a separate boat. Deyuri is one of the 16 Sri Lankans who is being housed at Mandapam camp in Tamil Nadu, waiting for a decision to be taken on how economic migrants from Sri Lanka will be classified. Her reasons for escaping, though, were simple. My name is A. Deyuri. I am 28 years old. I am from the Manna district in Kokupadayan, Sri Lanka. I lost my husband and I'm survived by two kids. I could not go out for a job because there's no one to take care of my children. My mom and my brother are put up at a camp in Velur, Gudiyatam. So I decided to get to the Mandapam as fast as I can. The cost of everything has gone up so much in Sri Lanka that we could not survive. Here in India, even if we have 100 rupees, it is more than enough to at least fill up the stomach. But in Lanka, we need at least 2,500 to 3,000 rupees to survive a day. Sri Lanka is staring at its worst economic crisis since independence in 1948. It is struggling to cough up enough foreign currency to pay for imports, which in turn has meant empty shops and a shortage of essential goods and items like medicine, fuel, milk powder, cooking gas and food. But why is that our problem? To begin with, it's the geography. The distance between Dhanushkodi in Tamil Nadu and Talai Manar in Sri Lanka is just about 25 kilometers. Then comes the demographics. Nearly 24% of the Sri Lankan population, especially in the northern parts, are Tamil-speaking. So, just as the first set of refugees get washed up on our shores or get saved by our coast guards, their problem is very much our problem. It always has been. But today, Sri Lanka holds a lot more relevance than just a few refugees trickling in. It's the theatre of strategic, naval, maritime and commercial dominance between two large Asian powers, India and China. It's Tuesday, March 29th, and I'm your host, Dia Rekhi, and you're listening to Sri Lanka's Crisis, India's Concern on the Morning Brief. But how did Sri Lanka reach here in the first place? Has it been a crisis in the making? Who is to blame? How is India responding and what more can be done? As we shuttle between the past, present and future in this episode, we will have an economist from Colombo and an expert on South Asia help us break down all of these questions. So stay tuned. 
The situation in Sri Lanka is uh, very desperate in terms of people's common life. There are a lot of uh, shortages in the country. In addition to that, there were long hours of power cuts experienced by people in the country. Last week, that was about five hours and this week, seven hours. So it's increasing. And there are rumors that next week, it it's going to be 10 hours. 10 hour power cut means the entire production structure would completely come to a halt. So it's very difficult situation for a um, common man and also industrialists and entrepreneurs to conduct their businesses. Normally people seek for generators. And in order to run the generators, they need, uh, need to get the, the gasoline. So that is not available now. It's a mess kind of thing. But the authority says that this shortage will be uh, ending in this week, next week, and the following week like that. But it, it's turned out to be a never-ending problem in the country. That's Dr. M. Ganesha Murthy, economist and senior lecturer at the Department of Economics, University of Colombo. In fact, while recording his bits for our podcast, we were so worried that we'd lose connectivity with the professor because of the power situation in Sri Lanka being so unpredictable. Due to a high debt level and one of the highest levels of gross financing needs among emerging market economies, Sri Lanka had very limited fiscal space to counteract major shocks such as COVID-19. I turn to Akhil Berry, Director of South Asia Initiatives at the Asia Society Policy Institute, to give us a quick recap of the lead-up to what we are seeing today. The origins of the current crisis, I would say, go back to 2007, when Mahinda Rajapaksa, the current prime minister, was president, and Sri Lanka was looking to finance its infrastructure spending. So at the time, the government tapped into international bond markets to try to finance this infrastructure boom. And Sri Lanka is now in a position where some of these bonds are maturing, and also the interest payments on those bonds are causing a drain on Sri Lanka's economy. In terms of the governance aspect, since President Gotabaya Rajapaksa came to power, there have been a number of questionable policy decisions that have really helped exacerbate this crisis. When he came to power, one of his first acts was to cut the value-added tax as well as the income tax. The other thing, and this could not really have been foreseen. There are two kind of big issues that also have put pressure on Sri Lanka. So the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, that really hurt Sri Lanka's economy. Actually, if you read this Article 4 report, which the IMF published, the IMF staff clearly states that Sri Lanka's debt is unsustainable. And I think one of the biggest issues with Sri Lanka, with the Sri Lankan government is that it refused to acknowledge the scale of the crisis. Um, the government, and especially the Central Bank of Sri Lanka, continuously said there is no issue, and they opted for other policies, including printing money at a massive rate. So, for example, in 2020, Sri Lankan money printing was about 500 billion rupees. Last year, it was 1.2 trillion rupees. And this was done in order to keep interest rates down amidst a surging budget deficit. And unfortunately, this has had an inflationary impact on the economy. So last year, Sri Lanka's uh, inflation rate reached about 14%. But there's more to the story. Dr. Ganesha Murthy said that the ruling government was very much in the know about what was happening and turned a blind eye despite repeated warnings. The experts and even some professionalists and the academics in the country have warned the government very well in advance. There's going to be a situation like this. 
but the government never listened to these ideas or actually they even believed this will lead to a kind of situation like this. Actually, the central bank governor, the present one, when he took over, he said that all these issues of opposition's conspiracy, so the play down all these, you know, grave situations and that, that would be the major reason for this. But again, I can pinpoint there are certain um, activities of the government led to this situation. So when this government took over, they basically believed that they can develop the national economy through import substitution policies. So they, their focus was not on export promotion or improving the export sector, rather they were focusing on developing the national economy. That is not a bad thing to do, but for a small country like Sri Lanka, it should be done very carefully. Um, on top of that, the government had uh, initiated all of an, I mean, single night, the government said you can't use the uh, chemicals in uh, agriculture sector. So green agriculture, overnight transformation. So uh, that, that led to the shortfall of the agriculture production by at least 25% for this year. And then uh, taking loans from neighboring countries, uh, they believed that they can manage with the situation. It didn't work in that way. So they started printing money. So printing money also justified by the government using this modern monetary theory where the printing money will not lead to price increases or inflation. And this situation, while the others pointed out that the government should go to the IMF and get IMF support in order to uh, get out of the situation, and the government did not believe that the IMF not, is not a solution. Like it is, it, it's the government, government completely denied that option altogether at the beginning. So I think this particular dire situation would have been prevented had the government listened to the experts and taken decisions appropriately at, at, a, at a, a proper time. As per the recent IMF report about Sri Lanka, pre-pandemic tax cuts and the impact of COVID-19 led to fiscal deficits larger than 10% of GDP in 2020 and 2021 and a rapid increase in public debt to 119% of GDP in 2021. But leave these numbers aside for a moment. I don't know about you, but when I think of Sri Lanka, I think of pristine beaches, Ceylon tea, cricket, Buddhism and the Ramayana, all of which contributes to its popularity as a tourist destination. And no prizes for guessing how badly Sri Lanka or the Pearl of the Indian Ocean, as it is famously called, was affected by the pandemic. Tourism is one of Sri Lanka's biggest sources of foreign exchange. And so having very little tourism for, I would say, two years has really hampered Sri Lanka's ability to generate foreign exchange. And again, another situation that could not have been seen, but the Russia-Ukraine crisis, it's had multiple effects on Sri Lanka. With oil hitting a, over $100 per barrel, that has put a massive strain on Sri Lanka's foreign exchange reserves, which are only about um, $2.3 billion, if I remember correctly. And Sri Lanka just, just does not have the money to be able to pay for the fuel imports. Similarly, Sri Lanka also purchases wheat, milk, and sugar from abroad. Ukraine is known as the world's breadbasket. And... There's a global, there's a, there's a global wheat shortage emerging because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that has an impact on Sri Lanka as well. So now what you're seeing is you're seeing a food crisis in Sri Lanka, but also because of the foreign exchange crisis, there is an inability to pay for fuel. 
And so now you've had rolling blackouts in Sri Lanka, most recently of up to 10 hours, and a rupee that's been devalued, which makes it more difficult for Sri Lanka to import commodities from overseas. While Akhil felt that the uptick in tourism was critical to Sri Lanka getting out of its current slump, Dr. Ganeshamurti felt otherwise. He said that tourism could perform the role of a support sector, but the real answer was increased foreign investments. After the war in 2010, Sri Lanka got the highest number of tourists in 2017 or something like that. And that year itself, the tourism-related income did not surpass 5 billion Sri Lankan rupees. So that was the highest recorded in the country, 5 billion. Corona pandemic actually um, ruined that industry to the ground. But that industry, even if you get the full potential of that industry, it will not go beyond say, $6 billion per hour per annum. So it can provide a relief, temporary relief. But at the same time, it is very fragile industry. I think uh, the more foreign investment is the only way out. It should encourage the investors to come and invest in this country rather than just focusing on fragile industry, uh, industry like tourism. Also, here's another thing about tourism that should be highlighted. The professor mentioned that Sri Lanka at this point cannot offer much to tourists with the shortage in essentials as well as the prevalent power cuts. There's also the fact that the Maldives has been gaining a lot of edge over Sri Lanka as the destination of choice for Instagrammable vacations. But there's no denying that India and Sri Lanka's ties go back a long way. Sri Lanka finds itself in a bit of a spot though, with not just India, but China too actively working on the ground to make its presence felt. Here's what Dr. Ganeshamurti had to say. The two countries have their economic interests in the country, in Sri Lanka. When you look at the Hambantota, the southern port and also some, even Colombo port, one pier has been given to China to maintain. And also the huge Chinese investment, the dream project, the port city is entirely invested by the Chinese. At the same time, the the eastern province, the oil tanks have been given to India. So India and China are equally investing in the country. But whenever Chinese investment is coming into the country whenever the country's resources are given to on a lease basis or 99 year lease basis it is given to chinese we see less voices are raised against to that but when something is given to india or america they, they, immediately we can see the repercussions from the media and also the opposition parties but i would see the rescue part of the sri lankan economy at the moment is I think is supported by everyone. In this crisis, Sri Lanka has turned to other countries for help, including India. On the 17th of March, India announced a $1 billion line of credit to Sri Lanka to procure food, medicines and other essential items. Last month, India extended a $500 million line of credit to Sri Lanka to help it buy petroleum products. But ironically, one of Colombo's closest friends, China, has actually added to their problems and turned out to be less dependable than they had hoped. Sri Lanka has been borrowing recklessly from China over the last few years to fund its infrastructure projects. Before the pandemic, Sri Lanka owed China about $5 billion, amounting to 10% of the country's external debt that is dominated by sovereign bonds. 
So I asked the professor about what Sri Lanka's foreign policy is like and whether there's been a lapse in judgment. Sri Lanka's foreign policy is a, a non-alignment foreign policy anyway. But from time to time, Sri Lankan different governments have shown that they are lenient towards uh, China or a Western world from time to time. For this government, the present regime is more towards pro-Chinese or pro-left-wing lenient. They wanted to do more with China and China was so generous to invest in, uh, rather not to invest, but to give loans to build up these infrastructure projects like port, airport, and also there is a communication tower in the country and also all these highways. These were dream project of the government. So the Chinese have helped a lot to build these dream projects. But unfortunately, these infrastructure projects are not used to generate dollar inflow into the country. So that was the main mistake. And also the government don't want to be engaged with the Western countries. When you look at uh, Sri Lanka's export, the majority goes to EU and America. So our export markets are in, in the Western world, but the import sources, Sri Lanka import um, largely from the two countries, China and India. Now, at present, we can see the three superpowers in the world. United States is present here. And recently, there are delegates visiting here and had a discussion with the government. And also, the uh, uh, Sri Lankan finance minister visited India for, for a $1 billion loan. And the Chinese are now granting a food subsidy or food grant to Sri Lanka. So all three partners, international partners, are engaged at present in Sri Lanka. In a way, the presence of the three superpowers in the world will give some kind of a hope for the common man but at the same time, there was a serious concern about this country's presence. And there are opposition parties now saying that the government is selling all the resources to India and Americans. They don't talk about the Chinese because the oppositions are more pro-Chinese. That led me to wonder what all of this would mean for India. I asked Akhil and he said there was quite a lot at stake. On the India front, we're already seeing the impact of the economic crisis, in that people are trying to leave Sri Lanka and heading to India. And this could create a refugee crisis in southern Indian states, especially Tamil Nadu. So India is definitely worried about that. And there have been multiple problems with China in Sri Lanka. So one thing I would say first is that oftentimes it's seen that Hambantota port is an example of China loading up a country with debt and the country not being able to pay off the debt and thus exchanging the debt into equity. That's not entirely true here. So while, yes, China has a role to play in this conversation, it's important to note that China only accounts for about 10% of Sri Lanka's overall foreign debt. Japan was actually the largest bilateral creditor. And the vast majority of Sri Lanka's debt is to foreign in international investors. So last year, it was estimated to be about 47% of Sri Lanka's overall debt. I've seen figures that say it's about 38% right now. I, I would push back on this idea of the Chinese debt trap narrative. However, China has been able to exploit the situation in a few other ways. So we have seen China take on a much more strategic role within Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka, the current Sri Lankan government has been willing to sacrifice Sri Lanka's strategic autonomy in favor of short-term decisions that actually benefit the Chinese government. So one example I would say is Sri Lanka had been negotiating a $1 billion loan with China 
a loan, not a grant, which I, again, I think is problematic. And that also helps exacerbates this crisis. But so when the COVID-19 pandemic was starting, this, lo this loan was already being negotiated with China, but China was able to repackage it as a COVID-19 loan and support for the Sri Lankan government. Um, so that's one example of how Sri Lanka has allowed itself to be used to benefit Chinese narratives overseas. Secondly, the Chinese influence has really forced Sri Lanka to make poor strategic decisions, which have alienated key partners. So, for example, Sri Lanka's decision to cancel the Eastern Container Terminal project came as it believed China would bail them out if it came to that situation. But in the process, it angered India and Japan. And so that had a spillover effect. So I remember back at the beginning of the pandemic uh, when Sri Lanka was negotiating a currency swap with India. So India initially offered Sri Lanka a $400 million currency swap under the SARC mechanism. Sri Lanka paid it back, but then asked for a new currency swap. The High Commission in India issued a press release saying, we have made it known that there can be no currency swap without an IMF program. The Sri Lankan government said no to an IMF program, but that a currency swap was going to happen. The currency swap did not materialize for quite some time. And this was an example of how Sri Lanka alienated a key partner for a short-term objective. Similarly, Japan, there is no reason for the Japanese government to help out Sri Lanka because of the number of decisions Sri Lanka has taken against them. Not only the Eastern Container Terminal Project, but there was a light rail project that was in development that Gotabaya Rajapaksa cancelled. And so these decisions were made with the belief that the Chinese would bail them out if it came to it. But that belief was misguided. All they needed to do was look elsewhere around the world to see that China was not willing to bail out countries. It's willing to give more loans, yes, but it wasn't willing to bail out anyone. Look at the IMF negotiations with Zambia. Look at Pakistan, for example. Pakistan, the case study for massive amounts of Chinese debt. And so at the, you, you're in Sri Lanka now, you're seeing a much more confident and bolder China. Now on the India side, India has seen a number of decisions go against it, but because of the unwillingness of the Chinese to bail out Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka has now been able to, been forced to approach India. And India has actually done an excellent job in this. The former finance minister, who's currently the central bank governor, Ajit Cabral, um, Basel has continuously made trips to India. Um, Foreign Minister Jay Shankar is going to be in Sri Lanka this um, in the next couple of days, I believe. It's still not bailing out Sri Lanka, but it is coming to Sri Lanka's aid at a time when other countries are not. By issuing the, um, the credit lines to Sri Lanka for food and fuel and essential commodities, and but also encouraging and also getting some of its strategic interests um, met, such as the, the development of the Trincomalee for oil fields. So I think those are signs of diplomatic victories that India has, that China has not had. Tamil Nadu is no stranger to Sri Lankan refugees. Hordes of Sri Lankan Tamils have sought refuge in Tamil Nadu, fleeing war and hostilities on the island for decades. But the 16 Sri Lankan Tamils who arrived on the Rameshwaram coast this time around were different. They were fleeing food shortage and economic misery. Here's what S. Mary Jalini told E.T. 
getting food every day is difficult in Sri Lanka. Kerosene, diesel prices have gone up so much. My husband is a fisherman and without kerosene and diesel, how will we manage? My husband stopped working and that's why we had to come here. I had some gold jewelry which I sold off for money. Other things and furniture we had in our home have also been sold to get some money. I was also working, but I have a daughter, so to keep her safe and be at home, I left my job. Even government officials that ET spoke to said that they were waiting for the centre to take a call on what needed to be done, as these refugees were economic migrants and hence didn't fall within the ambit of the definition of a refugee which is, in international law, a person who is fleeing persecution or conflict in his or her country of origin. So, where does that leave us now? What's expected to happen going forward? Is it going to get worse or is there some respite for Sri Lankans? I know you have a lot of questions. I did too. And that's exactly why we got both our guests to tell us what they expect going forward. And here's what they had to say. Even if the, go- the government go to the IMF discussion right now, today, it will take at least six months to get the support of the IMF, the funding, the tranches. But the IMF seal of approval is a sine qua non. It's very important for, the, for Sri Lanka to obtain a loan from other sources. Sri Lanka so far has taken IMF-supported programs or loans 16 times, and this is going to be the 17th one. So, engagement with the IMF would be useful for the country to get at least uh, some kind of a soft landing of the economy. But the IMF uh, conditionalities would be very, very strict. So, I'm encouraged by the fact that they're finally seeking the IMF's help. This should have been done a long time ago. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of pain in the short term. But I think you're starting to see. Sri Lanka becoming a flashpoint for the U.S.-China competition, I do believe they are going to have to renegotiate their debt payments with international creditors first and approach the IMF for a long-term program that ensures that they're on a path, path to fiscal sustainability. However, to get, there, to get to that point, it is going to require painful decisions by the government, including cutting public sector workers, reforming state-owned enterprises, maybe even privatization. The question is, does the government have the political will to be able to do that? The government does have a um, massive majority in parliament. The next presidential elections are not until 2024, and the parliamentary not until 2025. So I don't, even though there are massive protests against the government, I don't think that's going to lead to the downfall of the Rajapaksa brothers. However, the economic situation is going to deteriorate Here's the thing. Sri Lankan Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksha and President Gotabaya Rajapaksha find themselves in the line of fire currently. But both our guests said that if they manage to pull off the IMF assistance, they still have a chance of coming out with just a few nicks ahead of the 2024 Sri Lankan presidential election and the prime ministerial election in 2025. It is a grim reminder of just how important it is for a country to have strong economic policies, a government with foresight and a prudent foreign policy 
to tide over the uncertainties that are becoming part and parcel of our everyday life. Thank you Dr. Ganesh Murthy and Akhil and a special thanks to Kiran Somvanshi and Bhavya Dilip Kumar from ET. I'm your host Dia Rekhi and you're listening to Sri Lanka's Crisis India's Concern on the Morning Brief. If you like this episode, please share it on your social media. The Morning Brief airs every Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. Thank you and have a great day. Producers Surbhi Modi from ET and Swati Joshi from Awaaz. Sound editor Sandarya Jayachandran from Awaaz. Executive producer Arijit Parman. All clips used in the episode belong to their respective owners. Credits mentioned in the description.